Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Hatha Salas Ross. I am Sydney Urbanek. On the show this week, we witness the rise and fall of Blackberry, a legal battle rages between funeral homes in the burial, and on Film Club, the dirty front school shootings in Blackberry director Matt Johnson's debut. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So, first things first, Sydney, we're very, very excited to have you with us on this, which is like actually a really fun week. But for listeners who haven't been following you, could you do a little intro as to who you are and what it is that you do? Yeah, so I I think I'm probably primarily here because I'm like the Canadian representative in this like week of lots of Canadian stuff and stories semi-Canadian stories sometimes. So I'm Sydney and I am a Toronto-based film critic who writes mostly about pop music on screen, whether that's music videos or rockumentaries or pop stars making movies of other kinds. And um, I'm also just a film critic and former film grad. So, and I'm from Canada. So again, like we're gonna make this work. Jamie Foxx is, you know, let's use that as my hook. Yeah, he's quite the joy. Uh, one of my funnest texts of the week was Haffa just being like, oh my God, Jamie Foxx is in one of these movies? I mean, like, yeah, he's he's great. He's, he's very good. Like, it was a lovely surprise. He's, I think, like a respected actor and talent and yet like semi, simultaneously quite underrated still. Something that I wish we could get more from him is like him singing in movies. But um, yeah, there's this really great moment in like the Barbara Streisand concert film that's on Netflix where he joins her on stage and does like an impersonation of her and it's wonderful so that's just like a random I'm gonna throw that out there oh my god I'm so with you so many of my like dopamine hits come from YouTubing Jamie Foxx um doing impersonations of people like it's a very underrated talent and he's so uncanny with so many of those voices it's true he's a he's a great impersonator and the moment that i'm referring to with streisand is like a singing impersonation which i think is just like especially oh, wow. magic <laughs> God. Well, I mean, we've, we we do also have kind of beyond a load of Jamie Foxx love coming listeners' way. Kind of a theme coming out this week. On this, all of these are related to real life events in some way. With Blackberry, the barrel is based on a uh, a real court case, and the Dirties has kind of like a little hint of you know the, the hideous epidemic of school shootings that is happening. But I don't know. What do you guys think? These these films take a lot of flourishes with them, but like. Is there a responsibility that film has to be very accurate when it's depicting these events? Or should we kind of lean into all of the sort of flourishes around them? This is an interesting one, I think, because I do believe that the access that we have to information nowadays and how connected we are and how on social media we are, things are happening, has blurred the lines between reality and fiction to us and many times the access that we get to celebrities lives how every single piece of news is coming to us as it happens i think the capacities of our primate brains to to really store all this information has has dwarfed the way that we behave nowadays and i think it also skewed a little bit our sense of of the barriers between art 
and reality. And I think one thing is for you to have a documentary that is declaratively nonfiction and that is faithful to telling the truth. And we all know there's not a, a whole truth always. And well, never really. And there's also fiction films that from the get go will tell you very clearly that they are not here to tell you a journalistic story and I think it's all up to the audiences to be able to trust filmmakers and artists in the depiction that they want to bring to the screen and I'm all up for interesting cinematic explorations of stories that we might be really familiar with or even better like with the Betty O things that I've never heard about in my life and it just sends me into this crazy rabbit hole um it is one of my favorite things about film to, to just discover more about the world through it yeah i think like first and foremost it has so much to do with like does this film have any claim to reality and truth in the first place and like a lot of people miss that um i think it came up a lot when we as a film loving community we're talking about like blonde which is an adaptation of a novel and you know deeply flawed film that like nevertheless was not claiming to be a play-by-play factually speaking of marilyn monroe's life And then I don't know if this is like an unpopular opinion, but I think it's one that I've developed writing a lot about like pop stars and movies and often like them telling their own stories. But if you go in as an informed viewer or after you see the film, you go online and like learn what the real quote unquote story was, then it kind of doesn't matter if a film is more concerned with like the overarching myth of a story than the, the nitty gritty don't know what you guys think about that well i think it's a tricky one because you know there's things where music rights i think particularly when it comes to music biopics become such an issue so something like a bohemian rhapsody which is obviously a terrible film but like you have to in order to appease the people that kind of hold the strings when it comes to the rights like hey if we want the music we have to make you all look absolutely wonderful and unimpeachable and I guess the kind of the contrast that's there is that like the Baz Luhrmann Elvis got all of the Elvis music and the Sofia Coppola Priscilla did not. I also think it's interesting because now that we have so much access to celebrities real lives and we get to see the ugly side of them so deeply dissected at all times I think the mythology that we had at some point around certain stars like Elvis at that time I don't think we're ever going to be able to achieve this sort of glossy mythology again from the point of view of someone who isn't as educated in music as someone like Cindy, but who only gets the, the big picture, really. I don't think we will ever have that again. So touching those legacies can be quite tricky. Um, and I, I understand the family's desire to, to preserve this sort of mythology in a sense. Yeah, like the whole, like what authorial role did this person play in the telling of their story aspect is interesting and like with bohemian rhapsody which is another like deeply flawed film um several different ways it's also like at the same time a fascinating film in terms of like how does queen how do the surviving members of queen want their story told and that's like a revealing damning text in itself so i feel like as long as you can kind of hold the two truths in your brain these sorts of films can be very rich but of course That's an example like the Lerman Elvis movie where the estate is involved, where the actual players in the story are involved. And like, it's, it's interesting to see this new Priscilla trailer making waves right now online and people jumping to say something like, this is the true story. Like, this is the untold, needs to be told true story of Elvis Presley, the like the darker side of Elvis Presley. And you might argue that actually both films, both Elvis films can be true at once because they're different facets of the same man, facets of the same story. Watching both and talking about both in tandem gets more into like the nuances of this one story and its different, you know, contours. It's interesting. I mean, Hafler and I share a editor with a different publication who is truly like an Elvis giant super fan and she still felt that even with Priscilla that they had been pretty timid that like some of the sort of established reality was not as brutal as as what happens on the screen but I mean and that is I think I guess down a little bit to the artistic license of Sofia Coppola she wants to capture the magic of young love and as a result maybe she is showing it so much through Priscilla's perspective that um almost like the excuses that priscilla made 
are also present on screen. I think that's the danger of tackling a story about people who have super fans. It's the same with Maestro, speaking to a friend of mine who is really into opera and classical music and musicals in general. And she knows so much, she's a walking encyclopedia. And she's talking to me about Felicia and she's talking to me about the story and she hasn't seen the film and I had just seen the film. And I'm like, this is not the person whose life I've just seen on screen. And then suddenly you're just grasping at this idea of reality. And I'm almost glad that I had no idea of all of these things that I went on to discover because it allowed me to experience this person that a film is trying to bring to me instead of my mind always tricking me into into finding these connections into grasping to reality to, to a certain extent. Yeah, it's like I recently on the topic of Coppola introduced a screening of Marie Antoinette and that's a film that I experienced for the first time before knowing really all that much about the real Marie Antoinette's life and I you know learning all the things later and being able to look back and see what Coppola was interested in of her story and how she you know quote-unquote sanitized things what she left out some of the like ellipses that she made learning all of like the real history has never made that original film like any less rich to me because again it's like they're so telling in like the selection and exclusion of different real life things and sometimes in like the fabricating of others what this artist finds interesting about this person this like larger than life figure who we talk about in like uh, you know it's almost like they're not real it's tricky well i mean we should move on because we got some like fun movies to get on to and i would say a movie that is a little bit less tricky because this is more explicitly like hey these guys suck but you can have fun watching them insult each other <laughs> first up it's blackberry Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. You'll receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady HQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. Blackberry tells the story of Mike Lazaridis and Jim Baselli, two men who charted the course of the spectacular rise and catastrophic demise of the world's first smartphone. So, Hafer, you're you're a bit younger than me. I mean, like coming into it, like was this also a story you didn't know much about? Did you have a relationship with the rise and fall of Blackberry? I had a envy relationship with the rise and fall of Blackberry because I was very much a teen when they were at the height of their popularity back home in Brazil, and I couldn't afford one. And at that time, there was no such thing as WhatsApp or 4G, and all my friends were texting on something called BBM. And I don't know if people listening to this are going to remember what that was, but it was this little chat that was exclusive to BlackBerry users, and I felt very excluded. So yeah, I, I knew about BlackBerry, but I didn't know about the story behind BlackBerry. But I mean, even not knowing that, you and I have something in common in that we are big Glenn Howerton stands. So, I mean, he could be doing a a film about reading out the phone book and we'd still be like, let's come into this for his line deliveries. (laughs) Oh, a thousand percent. Black Betty was one of the main reasons I wanted to go to Berlin for the Berlin Alley this year, which isn't a festival I go to normally because it's cold and dark. And if it's cold and dark, I'd rather stay home in Scotland. But I went to Berlin. I really wanted to see Blackberry. I liked Matt Johnson. I liked his two movies beforehand. But I love Glenn Howerton. The day I met Glenn Howerton in Berlin, I had just met Kate Blanchett. And I told him, I'm like, I'm more excited about bumping into you than I am about having just met Kate Blanchett. But yeah, I, I love It's Always Sunny. I think it is just a perfect comedy series. And for it to be standing still so sharp after so many years... It truly is incredible. And I think a lot of it lies on Glenn's just incredible delivery. He's just so good. There's so many lines at the top of my head that I can quote one by one. It's just he is one of those actors. And he's he's, he's a Juilliard trained actor. He is this level of knowledge of the craft and passion for the craft that I think sometimes when actors are known solely because of a comedic show gets so easily dismissed. So I'm really, really glad. I think it's overdue that he's getting a larger role that even still being very comedic allows him to explore a little bit more of this dramatic side. I think he's just so good. I think he carries this very easily. I think you still see a lot of um, Dennis Reynolds in it. 
but it's still very good. And I'm glad he shaved his head and gave us a little bit of like a different sort of Glenn Howerton. But yeah, I think I still think about his delivery about Waterloo, where the vampires come out. I don't know where Waterloo is. I had no idea who the vampires were. I have no idea, but suddenly I'm like, yes, I know exactly what these means. He has this like delivery. It's almost musical. Like at any point, he could break into song, and it's like that on "It's Always Sunny," like which I've been actually watching for the first time this year, all year long. Like as I have dinner with my husband, we've been making our way through it. Waterloo is like a couple hours max from Toronto. Ah, thank you so much. You You're know welcome. what? I must, I must have getting really into this. I am so jealous that you get to do It's Always Sunny for the first time. But I mean, Glenn, not that this entire movie is just Glenn Howerton, but like he's to me is by far the best thing in it. And I was like very intrigued that like I already knew from a couple of years ago that he was the sort of the, the decision that James Gunn made for Guardians of the Galaxy was whether Star-Lord was going to be him or Chris Pratt. But then also it came out this week that it was going to be him or Jeremy Strong to be Kendall Roy. And that one doesn't make sense to me. I cannot picture a Glenn Howerton, Kendall Roy. Yeah, I think for someone who has such a strong relationship to a role like Dennis Reynolds, for him to become an entire different person for succession would have been a bit of a push. But you never know, there might be a parallel multiverse where this exists and it is wonderful. I genuinely believe it would be. I mean, he's so good in Fargo season one. I mean, sorry, Sydney, beyond Glenn Howerton, like, what did you make of the film? It was fun. So I don't mean to brag in light of everything we've talked about so far, but I did have a Blackberry when they were big. I may have had, based on the film, which I actually saw for the first time last night, I may have had two and I was being reminded of the different models. Like as the story was being told, I was like, I, I definitely had like the trackpad, the second act trackpad, but the story, like all of the business goings on and like the whole story of the company's rise and fall, that was all very new to me. Though I do remember when Research in Motion, which like we usually just call RIM, fell apart because it was a big news story and and all that. But the thing that like really stuck out about this film for me is how it took a world that I have like virtually no interest in and made it very interesting to me. It didn't feel like it was unfolding. And when I say like the world I'm referring to, I mean like, you know, the tech tech poisoned <laughs> capitalism poisoned world of like Glenn Howard's character. It made it interesting to me where I, my brain wasn't shutting down. Like I am not the person to talk to about, you know, like stocks and um, hostile takeovers and the like, but I was able to follow everything. And when, when we talk about the burial later, I didn't get quite the same willing, fun immersion into that world as I did uh, with this one. But yeah, that was the big thing. I was like, how did they make this fun? How did they make this story fun? And I, I guess it's sort of the, like the gonzo nature of the different characterizations it's very interesting because last week i saw dumb money and i do think that at the heart of it they're trying to do something that is very similar this very frantic crazy real life story of look at what happened isn't it crazy but with dumb money i felt dumb i didn't understand what was going on i was confused i'm like what is shortening stocks um i am just a girl Help me out, girl maths, truly. <laughs> um, with Black Betty, it's easy to understand because at the core, it's not about the dealings or the technology that was at place. It's truly a story of male friendship and male relationships in general and the dynamics that are established in these environments where are they are full of men and they suddenly have access to all the little toys and gadgets that they always wanted to play with. And it's just a bunch of nerds. And I do think it's a lovely insight into nerd culture. And I spoke to Matt about this film a few months ago, and he said something that was so interesting. He said, a lot of people are so quick to depict the nerds as these fragile, easy to mock creatures when the world that we have built and that we live in today was made by them. And it's true. It's true. Nerds have brought them to the have brought us to the world that we live in today. And I think understanding the dynamics of their creative process and how their relationships kind of fall apart is a really interesting hook. 
Yeah, there's this idea of that they're sort of a little softer, I suppose. And it's one of the things I always find interesting when it comes to the trip um, with, you know, Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon, like this idea of these kind of like kind of liberal, elite, creative men and like that they're just kind of teasing each other. And actually, if you watch it with, you know, your mind open to what's happening, this is like warfare. This is like the most vicious interactions you've ever seen. And I and I kind of love the David Mamet-esque brutality of this the most. But I mean, I'm, I'm always up for quoting an ep of It's Always Sunny, but like, I do feel like there were some really good lines in this one as well. Like, just vicious in the best way. Yeah, it's a very good film. And I also think we've been, we've been speaking about Glenn Howerton, but I, I do think that Jay Baruchel is really, really good in this film, um, despite his terrible, terrible wig. Like, what the hell is going on here? He's just very good. And, and I appreciate the shift in in their relationships as the the company's falling apart and how they kind of merge into each other's characters in a way that is really clever. And I also think that, that Matt's a very competent director in in framing the story from the excitement and the rush at the beginning with a camera that never stops, the handheld kind of crazy camera kind of settling into this routine and then just stopping for a moment to observe the demise of these people and the quiet desperation that they fall into towards the end. So it's very clever. I, I really do like Blackberry. So Sydney, uh, I'll come to you first with some scores in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect. I mean, I've got to assume you're pretty biased given that from what I understand, Jay Baruchel is a Canadian national hero. So you're just going to have to give him great score. <laughs> yeah, so I've been hearing about this film all year long because it was very anticipated naturally, like as a Canadian person who's always talking to other Canadian like film interested people. And also like this is one of those movies that's of interest to non-film interested people because of the subject matter and the fact that when it was coming out like a lot of hype instantly named like one of the best Canadian comedies of all time which is pretty pretty big and so I would give it a five for anticipation and I really enjoyed it I would say I'd probably give it a four in terms of like my initial viewing but because my initial viewing was so recent I don't think I have like a third metric yet so you'll have to uh, there will have to be a future episode where there's a little coda at the end. Oh, and here we have <laughs> me. I've thought about my Blackberry score. But no, I, I really didn't enjoy it. And um, the nerd thing is interesting with Johnson because I think it comes through in all of the films that he's made. Two things. One, like this this like blurring of what's real and what's not and the different layers to the kind of deception at work like that the viewer is experiencing but also that the characters are are nerdy guys who quote from pop culture and they have movie nights and they will read strongest to people who are like familiar with this this references that he's making throughout but also just like i think the the wealth of them and the specific references he makes are very illuminating of like what he cares about and like why he himself makes movies Oh, that's such an interesting point. Yeah, God, now that's changing my in retrospect. Um, <laughs> what about you? You went to Berlin to see this, so I'm assuming your in anticipation is pretty high. My anticipation is pretty high. I am a nerd at heart. I really liked my Johnson's previous films. I love Glenn Howard, and this had everything to hook me in from the beginning. It might almost be at a five. I thought four, but you are correct. I did go to Berlin to see this, so it might actually be a five. Enjoyment is also a four. I think it is a very competent, very fun film. I think it's lovely to see a self-described scrappy filmmaker um, being trusted with a meatier budget to play around and to do something that is bigger and that's going to get to more people. I love that Glenn Howerton got his moment. I really do hope that more come from it. So I think the four, and in retrospect, it's also four. I think it's a very, very good film. And I'm excited for UK audiences to see this. And I'm interested in, in how they're going to react because I think... Um, the Americans had a lot of affinities for the sort of defiant little Canadian story. 
but I'm not entirely sure how UK audiences will get to this. So, so I'm looking forward to seeing what people say. Yeah, I think in anticipation, I was probably a three, but that's just down to my cynicism that just assuming that like, surely things can't be nice. Enjoyment, I, you know, I would have been a four, but I had such a great level of joy when I realized that they got what the interesting bits of this and we were going to spend a lot of time on the rise, which is interesting, and a lot of time on the fall, which is interesting. And we're going to breeze past the middle part. I mean, what a, what a smart move because I've watched so many of these tech bro um, mini series online and it's just like when are we getting to the collapse but yeah so that was that was a real joy and then maybe like I just feel like I'm at like a 3.99 in retrospect I had a great time maybe it will go up upon um, further viewing I will be showing this to my family I think it, it, it was really good fun and I'm excited to watch it again but yeah keeping it at like 3.99 not quite ready to go to a 4 because I feel like I give everything a four and I'm trying to be a little stingier. But next up, it's The Burial. In 1995, Willie E. Gary, an unconventional personal injury lawyer with an impressive track record, helps financially troubled funeral home owner Jeremiah Joseph O'Keefe sue a large funeral home company, the Lowen Group, over a contractual dispute. So Sydney, that sounds like incredibly dry. Like, yes, we're going to watch various funeral home people sue one another in a legal battle. But I know what you thought. This movie was so fun. (laughs) This film has like a tone to it. And I don't know if there's like an established term for this kind of movie, but it's like the... What I'm about to say, I don't mean in like a a derogatory way because I love movies like this. Like it's the sort of like Philomena movie you'd watch like your you could see with like your grandmother that's like a real story and um the woman in gold is another one with like helen mirren and and ryan reynolds where like structurally compared to blackberry it felt like i could i could predict what part of the story we were about to enter like i could feel the act changing i could feel i was like okay in about 10 minutes we're gonna have to wrap it up like trial scene incoming as i kind of got at a little bit earlier, I think this film front loaded a lot of the drier stuff and then got it took a while to sort of unfold the human element and like the humans involved in the real life story, if that's fair. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I was like, why are we paying attention to this weird log case about a contract and it it went on for like 40 minutes and I'm just like okay there's definitely something there I thought that something was going to happen like they buried the mother of the president of the United States I thought it was going to be like this massive plot twist maybe they know who killed Kennedy or something like that Um, so it did take forever to get to it but I appreciate that. I also appreciate what you're saying. I think those are basically Boxing Day movies that you watch with your family. Kind of few good stories about the American dream, even if they're not in America. I still think they're about the American dream as a, as an essence. But I was like, I was speaking to Leila about this earlier. I heard nothing about this film. I did not know this film existed, and I consider myself a pretty online person, and I mostly just spend my time online talking about films and i had no idea this existed so when the first opening shot showed up i'm with you i didn't know this existed and i'm also very keeping abreast of jamie fox's movements like he's not been well recently i keep uh, keep, i keep an eye on him and i still didn't know this was yeah yeah i guess it was just like a weird tiff like the the mood here in the city like surrounding the festival was just not what it usually is i think Part of that was strike-related. Part of that was other festivals getting some of the would-be TIFF selections. I think that's probably part of it. But Yeah, I think if Jamie Foxx walked the red carpet with Tommy Lee Jones, I would have 100,000% have known that this had happened. It did not happen in TIFF. I did not know this existed. And when Layla told me we were watching a film called The Betio, I thought it would be just another Amazon mid-budget horror film. And I was preparing myself for it. And suddenly Jamie Foxx shows up. And I'm like, yes, now we are talking. So yeah, I think I was very seduced early on by him. I mean, it's got this kind of like Aaron Brockovich, like little guy going up against the big corporation beats, but like they they bring in this kind of the race of it all, which is quite interesting given that, you know, a a lot of the sort of Aaron Brockovich and um, 
blindside real life people have fallen from grace of late so perhaps we're not so interested in those um in those stories because um yeah the white saviors in them have proved to be problematic i mean from my perspective i think it was you know just like taking it as a black person who loves cinema like it was just kind of refreshing to see the dynamic flipped because as much as kind of, I suppose, Jamie Foxx's character, Willie E. Gary, is like a little bit inspired by Johnny Cochran, you know, the famous um, lawyer from the OJ trial, not inspired as a character, but like him personally inspired as a lawyer. That's obviously a black man representing a black man. And where we've seen so much kind of a time to kill, to kill a mockingbird, all of those sort of like white man makes the impassioned speech to kind of exonerate the sort of folksy... Uh, black person. I don't know. I think it was kind of fun to see the tables flipped. It's interesting to me because I'm trying to say this in a way that it won't spoil the film for people who have not seen it because the reveal of why this case mattered in the end and became such a, a staple of legality is quite an interesting one and I wish they had got this earlier in in the conversation for us to have more of an understanding of the ramifications that he had because once you understand the nature of what is at play and how much of a vulture this guy is which is lightly established in the beginning but then we spend such a long stretch of time without really understanding the legalities of what he's doing then it becomes a bit disjointed. But I think there's so much charisma in Jamie Foxx. I think I could just watch him do anything. And I think there's this entire commercial of his law firm that is such a delight. When that played, I'm like, this is incredible. This is just so good. And it's the kind of like comedic, over-the-top performance that I really appreciate in a way that it kind of detracts the film from this this idea of the blind side and Eric Brokovich and, and brings it more to its own thing. And I wish there was more of it. And it became less about the weepiness of it all. But yeah, I think it, it tries to be this emotionally arresting film, but I think it's a bit overlong and a bit disjointed structurally to achieve that. And I think we have seen recent films that have done this in in a much better way. I keep thinking of even like Origin that we've seen and, and Leila hated it. Oh my Venice God, I hated that movie. And David oh, Renee. Let film. me count the ways. <laughs> like films like and, and then a film I love Till from last year who who really confronted oh me my with God, something no. that <laughs> it's just it's difficult to talk about race in America in a way that doesn't just fall into the certain dramatic tropes that have been done time and time again. And I appreciate the idea and, and desire to do something that is slightly different. I'm not entirely sure it worked. I had not seen anything by Maggie Betts, who's the director of this, but I've heard, well, I read that Alexander Payne was supposed to direct this. And I'm kind of glad that it wasn't a white man who did it, even though I love him to death. And yeah, I think it's an interesting one um, race-wise, but I also don't think it's my place to talking about this necessarily yeah i mean i'd be really curious to hear what like a black person specifically from the south of the u.s thought of it because i feel like it's it's a context that a lot of movies get made about but i never really know how like actual black southerners like feel about the way the south is like and sort of race race relations are represented and whether i mean like it's a tricky thing i suppose with that like jamie fox character because in many ways, we're supposed to, like, enjoy how much he enjoys his success. Right, which I think is, um, is neat. And the tackiness of it, but is that also a little throwing a stereotype at people that are fundamentally extremely successful professionals? Yeah, I don't know. It's also this film, again, it's kind of, like, so fresh in my brain that it hasn't really, like, lingered at all. But it's interesting that there's, like, a whole bit around, you know, Tommy Lee Jones like the whole joke is that he's like performing like black music that there's been like an exchange of like a song from one man to the next and that like the comedy comes from the fact that he's singing this new music from this new world that he's just been introduced to via Jamie Foxx's character I don't know really what to make of that but it's one of those things again like I can picture the theater laughing yeah yeah it's buzzing because it's an amazon prime film and they do tend to not somewhat bury um some of like some really great titles that they get and this felt like very much kind of something that would be fun to watch with a bit of a crowd in that sort of like 
three generations of a family are going to watch a movie, what can we decide upon sort of thing. Yeah. Blackberry in particular is one where like I'd love to have seen it with more people around me. I think it's true of like, I mean, ideally you see every film in like a huge packed theater because I think you miss sometimes a lot of the like the dynamic of movie watching that comes from like, you know, rubbing elbows with somebody else and their own like take on every moment and joke and awkward moment, awkward pause and... Yeah, I mean, it's kind of where I think it kind of lost me a bit is that the runtime is not concise. It's I think it's just over two hours. Something like that. Yeah. And I, I do really enjoy courtroom dramas, but there was like fundamentally a lot of those are down to whether or not someone will be sent to prison for the rest of their life for murder. And it's just like, I don't know that I can, as charming as he is, care about how giant... Tommy Lee Jones's grandparents' trust funds are going to be. You know what I mean? Like, I want them to win, but it's like, that's a lot to ask in terms of investment in my time. Time. Yeah, I mean, like, it had me thinking in, like, a more active way than usual about the way, like, a courtroom drama is structured. So if, like, there's another, there's an alternate timeline in making this movie where the first 15 minutes are us getting to know one of like, you know, the black Southerners who's been um, exploited by this company. And then we meet Tommy Lee Jones and then we meet Jamie Foxx and like kind of unrolling it that way. But instead it was like the trial came before the stakes. The stakes came in the last like 30 minutes of the film, which is it. They got me like by the end of the story, I get why the story mattered and why this film has been made and what made it like a really strong like i'd be really interested to read the original new yorker story at this point oh i read it it's really fascinating i feel like the opening section is probably a hook of some kind like a one that this film didn't necessarily i don't want to you know speak out of out of turn here because maybe it is just as dry but i have a feeling i watched the film first so i can't remember because i just kind of had such a barrage of information i did them back to back um but yeah no it's certainly it's an excellent article and like very well structured and like yeah it keeps the suspense going but i mean for me it just feels with jamie fox who again jamie i'm so glad that you're doing better and like your health problems seems to be behind you once he won the oscar because i kind of knew him before from sitcoms to stand up and then he won this oscar and then he seems to just be trapped in this cycle of like doing oscar bait which is very strange for somebody who's already won an Mm -hmm. oscar like it feels like glenn close has kind of been trying to do that sort of thing to kind of finally nab one in the past decade but with him, like, we made those, like, films about that, like, violin player or, like, stealth or, like, you know, like, he seemed to do a lot of, like, very over-serious oscar Beatty titles. So it's been quite nice for me to, this year, to see him do this where he's just, he's having a riot. But also, they cloned Tyrone earlier this year for Netflix, in which he's paying, like, not just a pimp, but, like, an award-winning He's, pimp. like, having more fun. In, screen. like, a sort of... Yeah, just doing a black exploitation send-up in a way that is just great. And it's just like, yeah, this is what you should have been doing the whole time, Jamie. Like, you're already, I assume very wealthy, <laughs> very successful. You got your shiny statuette. Enjoy yourself. Yeah, because it's, like, the sort of horrible bosses vibe like when i saw that mm. film i was like oh like we are underusing this man like we are there is a more like there's a whole other world of this man's talent that's like kind of untapped and it feels like people are tapping into it which is something i also really love yeah. pamela reed who plays like annette o'keefe mm. and this film had me wanting to rewatch kindergarten cop <laughs> oh my god that's a blast from the past yeah. does kindergarten cop have any sequels I've seen, um, I don't. I feel like I've seen that film about fifty-seven times. It's one of to. the kind of the VHSs that I had as a kid. Yeah, it didn't God. really. Arnold Schwarzenegger like, taking on a dramatic role. Right, it got glossed over in this like Netflix Arnold series that came out earlier this year, and I was sort of like waiting. In, in my, if I had it my way, we'd have like a whole episode of that series about that movie, but I don't think that was his his vision. Yeah, well, fair enough. But um, just as I want Jamie Foxx to thrive, I hope Arnold and his tiny donkeys that live inside the house with him (laughs) are also having a very good week. Hafa, what are your scores? In anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect. Okay, in anticipation, this is a one. 
I had never heard of this one before. <laughs> I literally, I don't know if Amazon's going to do a big push and maybe other people will hear about it. And uh, maybe we're doing their work for them. You're welcome, Amazon. Um, so it was a one. Enjoyment, that was a three, mostly because of Jamie Foxx. I love Tommy Lee Jones. Um, but I think this is a Jamie Foxx film. And in retrospect, I'm going to be really nice, you know, and I'm going to give this a three as well. I think Jamie Foxx deserves this. And I... Um, I do think he's great in it. Sydney, what about you? In anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect. Yes. So for the burial, anticipation, I've I think I'll give it one more point than Hafa did, which was I'll give it a two, and that was because the subject matter on paper was not super enticing to me, but the cast was. In terms of enjoyment, I liked it more given the subject matter than I thought I would. So I think I would put it at a three with a couple points taken off of there for like the aforementioned structural runtime related reasons but yeah I think that's true to my to my feelings and then yeah I kind of need to let it like stew a little in my brain but I can't say I'm like I love how seriously you take your um retrospective view like this is uh we we appreciate this level of insight on the podcast I'm like no I'm not gonna just throw out 3.5 just because I love to just like sit on something for a year and then finally be like oh yeah so I have this you know I have this take on Game of Thrones would anyone like to hear it and they're like that show ended years ago (laughs) and I'm like yeah but I've only just I've only just like wrapped up the thought in my head so so next up it's film club Matt Johnson's debut it's the Dursies hey I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Matt and Owen are a pair of misfit high school students who love making and talking about movies, but they are victims of bullying at the hands of a group of classmates called the Dirties. Soon, the two boys start joking and fantasizing about revenge. Only one of them isn't joking. Hafa, I love this movie. I, I first watched it a few couple of years ago when I was doing a you know one of my signature cheery articles about school shooting films. Was this your first time coming to it, or were you already aware of the Dirties? I watched it before, and I watched it at the beginning of the year again because of Blackberry, and then I watched it this week again because of the podcast. So I think I've now watched the Dirties four times, which I think is, is much more That's than... too many times. I've got to say, you <laughs> know, I love it. But I remember the first time I watched it thinking it was such a weird little film. I wasn't entirely sure I liked it. I think I had watched Bowling for Columbine, and I was obviously very aware of... The school shootings in America, and it terrifies me so greatly. And, and I do believe I'm someone who has a really great and fairly irreverent sense of humor. I can laugh about a lot of stuff, but I wasn't entirely sure I could ever laugh or find the lightness in school shootings in any sort of way. But I think this is such an absurd film and such a deading 
young person's film that I just felt drew to it and and the idea that he spends the entire film telling you exactly what he's going to do and for some reason you just don't believe him and then he goes and does it is just really impressive to me because he was so young when he done when he did this film and it was such a guerrilla little project and then to have that final frame and his face saying oh and it's me it's so good. I think every time I watch that film, that is my favorite thing about it, his face in it and and how he encapsulates this idea of the rage that you feel for certain people being completely detached from the love that you can feel for others and this idea of being a psychopath, not necessarily dominating this entire person for who he is. Not that he finds any sort of um, redeeming qualities in psychopaths. I don't think he does, but... Once again, with all of Matt Johnson's films, the idea here is to observe the relationship between these two young guys and how they are growing together but growing apart and the pressure cooker of the school and the hormones and to be in the same environment as girls. Once again, I spoke to Matt earlier in the year. He's like, look, a lot of my films are about the fact that men, especially the men I hang out about, I hang out with are really affected by the presence of women um, and they continue to be in different points of their lives it's just understanding how this messes up their relationships but all in all I I'm, I, dig- I digress but I think it's such an interesting debut um, such a weird little film I hadn't really thought about that as one of the like through lines of of Johnson's work like the sort of homosocial relationships between men if you want to call them that and like there's only so many filmmakers that I think do that memorably and well at the same time but that's a it's a really good point yeah I do think all of his three films are about that and and about how different sort of um, power influences change the dynamics between men it can be women it can be money it can be glory how does that affect the relationships that you have with the men around you in these heavily dominated male environments? It's this cool locker room sort of film in a way that I think is really interesting. And it doesn't need to be, I don't think he shouts from the rooftops that this is what he's trying to do. I think it's just what he knows and it just brings that to the screen in a certain way. And do you think that like the found footage of it all, Hafa, like does like enhance the film? I hate found footage. I would like to disclose this right now. <laughs> I don't want to use the H word a lot. I hate found footage. I am a chicken. I think the Blair Witch Project is the most satisfying film that was ever made. I think I don't trust found footage. That's the point. Exactly. I don't trust found footage because this film has scarred me in a very early age. But also, like, I, I'm someone who has a really weird attention span. And if the camera just starts going kind of crazy and funny and weird and I start getting confused and overwhelmed so it's not necessarily my favorite storytelling device but here you kind of get a sense it complements the filmmaker's style and the fact that he didn't have any money he did this because the language that he was used to was that early YouTube kind of I have this little camera I can plug it into my computer it's very easy for me to make these films when they're making that montage in school with a girl and that's so funny because it just it just reminds me of being young and playing with my first video editing tools. And I think it works for Johnson because it's very intrinsically tied to the inspirations that made him a filmmaker. From that to the end of the credits and, and him being very openly honest that he's a filmmaker who just loves movies. I think it works. I do get a bit tired. I, I think... It's a short film and it needs to be short. If it was any longer, I would get tired from all that moving about. I always kind of assume that there is a big gap between the relationship that Canadians have with the idea of mass shootings versus Americans, which is entirely down to uh, Bowling for Columbine, where I just kind of assume that you guys just have like a nationalized health service. Nobody shoots anyone utopia because that's the way it was phrased. I mean, does this kind of actually speak to a threat that you feel like? Is this like something that is worried about within your culture? Um, It happens. It has happened. Like, I wouldn't ever claim that it doesn't happen here. We've actually had, like, a couple of really notable mass shootings in our history that aren't really that old or or anything. But it's not something, like, as as an elementary schooler, middle schooler, high schooler that I ever felt like I needed to think about or 
or anything. I remember like learning what a lockdown was in, I want to say grade five. Like it was, it seems like a much more endemic thing is maybe one way of putting it in US culture, which is like such a stupid, tragic, avoidable thing. This film though, like is almost spookier 10 years later. Like when it came out, I feel like it was, this has been like a decades long hot topic, but it feels like recently um, it's an, it was an interesting watch as a film from 10 years ago in a climate where I think there's a lot more like fatigue over it. Like people have gone from being angry to just being like tired. I, I think the reason I keep saying that, like it, it seems like all three of these films are sort of in their own ways about like the relationship between these two North American countries where in Blackberry, it's like a difference in business practices and demeanor and in the burial, it's like literally a story about a, a man in Canada who's like causing mayhem in people's lives in the US. But in this one, it's kind of harder to put into words, but it's like, a, I mean, one way of describing it, because, you know, I was talking about the references that it uses earlier to like Pulp Fiction and being John Malkovich, like maybe it's like a American pop culture seeping into these boys lives and you know there's the one part where like they say right like outright to the girl like what their plan is and she thinks it's a joke and kind of moves on I feel like I can't picture that happening at at any school in America and obviously it's a it's a setup you know it's a it's part of the the joke setup but it's like I think that's that's where I would put like the the discrepancy where like that's something that in the context of the narrative is not like a, a flag for her yeah i mean I, it, it's just kind of the it feels like 10 years of like an evil becoming increasingly mundane in a way like there's there's procedures now which are good because obviously this is a film about um that results in violence and like oh it would have been good had in theory this fiction world had procedures but then it's like deeply depressing that that's how familiar it's become that we would spot all of the signs and all of these things but um before i kind of um let you go on the dirties i'm just wondering like how do you feel about this thing that the film doesn't like explicitly say but the the idea that movies are at least in one person inspiring violence it's that like age-old debate thing right and like i don't even know if I'd be really curious to read Matt Johnson's like intentions for this film and having it be like Blackberry, like these nerdy guys that are quoting constantly from nerdier pop culture. The short answer is I'm not really sure. <laughs> I do think that in a, like a 2023 context, watching this film back, one of the like plot things that stuck out to me was stuck out to me more so was that there's a girl involved. And I think that's like something that we talk a lot more about now than we did a decade ago when this film came out, which is like there's always there's always some girl and her attentions or lack thereof that's like at the center of this story about young troubled high school boys who resort to violence. And then I was, you know, admittedly like watching this film and I felt the same way watching um, Johnson's like I think Operation Avalanche, which was the first film of his I ever saw, I was sort of distracted by the filmmaking setup where for the first, you know, however many seconds of every shot, you're not entirely sure like which layer you're in if you're watching the film or if you're watching the film within the film or the film within the film within the film. And in Blackberry, I didn't find like the technical aspects distracting with the dirties, I did find them, like the formal stuff, distracting. And then with the burial, I kind of wish they were more distracting, funny enough. It was like three very different ways of making like style front and center. God, yeah. I felt the same way that the filmmaking itself was like slightly alienating. But then that made sense to me coming back to it because I was just like, well, this is an alienated person this is a you know i i mean i kind of hate the term male gaze but essentially i'm like male gaze that views the women as objects and views a lot of people in his life as sort of accelerators for his own plot like that's just the way he views himself so it, it that the found footage the sort of that kind of use of the 
supporting characters actually worked better for me the more you know I think maybe this is the third time I've watched it half has watched it four times which is too many but three I think is fine yeah I do think like the the fact that it's mediated by a few layers is appropriate for like a teenager growing up in 2013 and especially now it feels like everything is like a screen within a screen and they're making a movie and also like any violence that is committed at the end of this film is going to be broadcast on other screens and then there's this weird meta thing happening where we're seeing like real life teenagers who found themselves in a Matt Johnson movie and within the movie the two boys are debating like the ethics of using teenagers images without their knowledge yeah. and then Matt Johnson's in it too of course, of course. yeah and it, <laughs> but it's like it tries to be two steps ahead of any potential not criticisms but like critiques that way the gender bender slash genre bender joke killed me admittedly <laughs> yeah I don't know it's, it's one of those funny things where I was just like I get it and then I'm sad I get it let me move to your non-movie recommendation Uh, Hafa, what is your one last thing? My one last thing is actually go outside. Really, I've been thinking about this a lot because autumn is coming. And I think that if you are in the UK, go outside, make the most delight that is coming outside. Meet your friends, go for a walk in the park because I'm so very aware that when October knocks, it means that the days are getting shorter. And for a lot of us who are listening to this right now and love movies, we just don't get outside. So I've been telling myself this a lot and usually I tell you to listen to music or to read a book or to do something like that but I'm trying to be good to myself good to others go outside before it gets super dark so that's it so what you're suggesting is Uh, to touch grass touch Touch grass grass, touch grass grass. (laughs) just get out of your house because I really know winter's coming I'm on my full game of thrones mode my like vitamin d lamp my sad lamp it's looking me in the face. The time for it to be on is coming. So go outside. Oh my God. New name for the podcast, Truth Movies and Touching Grass. What, what a great trio of things to live by. Should be. Sydney, what would you recommend people seek out that is not a movie this week? Aside from Touching Grass, which is great yeah, advice. Yeah, always, always good to touch grass. I would say I have been loving uh, Andrew Chan's new book, why Mariah Carey Matters. So I have been telling everybody to read it and I think it's like an especially cool read as someone who like has always liked Mariah Carey but doesn't necessarily know, like doesn't have like an elevator pitch for, you know, why she does matter necessarily. And like in addition to being an extremely thoughtful and like well-argued and researched book, it's also like beautifully written. Like I was, even from the first page, I was like, oh, okay, like this is going to be a... I'm going to be dog-earing the hell out of this book just to reread certain passages. So I I have been telling people to read that book in real life, and I will share it here. Oh, that is so good. Not only is um, Rogan Graham, friend of the podcast, going to be excited because he's Mariah Carey's yes, biggest fan. Yes, friend of me as well. But I, I adore uh, Mariah Carey in many, many ways. I think she's really gets underappreciated as a songwriter people talk about her range they don't speak about like actually how talented she is as a a writer and also she she saved a couple of lives because i believe there are many accounts of people glitter came out on night (laughs) and there were a couple of people that did actually skip work to go and see Glitter. So, oh, you mean like in a literal sense, she saved li- some lives. There are several wow. people who have said that like, I didn't go into work because I bought tickets to Glitter. In fairness, that might be... Maybe that's too dark for the podcast. <laughs> I think that's interesting. I mean, I they're alive. interesting too. It might also be coming up in the book and I just haven't haven't reached that part yet. But it's it's as a friend of Rogan's, it's a fun read because like she sort of has voice noted a lot of these same arguments to me in the past oh, and now i'm getting them are you doing you're doing the book book or are you doing the audiobook the book, book. or a combo the book book but you know being oh, okay apparently with the audiobooks she sings some lines yes so, i've I heard this maybe. it's um it's also a really it's an interesting companion piece in a roundabout way if you enjoyed renaissance beyonce's renaissance and the like sort of discourse mm-hmm. around it because of the way that in the 90s Mariah played such an important role with like remixing and having like a house 
presence in like gay nightclubs and and whatnot. It's um, there's a lot of things that, like for example, Beyonce is being applauded for in the last couple of years that she should be applauded for, and also Mariah Carey has been doing her own version of for a very long time. Just like curating, being like a sort of a very well versed in the history of like black popular music, and then finding ways to remix and revisit it for newer generations and it's a very it's a very great book i it's got my brain like firing on all cylinders i gotta say sydney like as much as i love mariah carey you see footage of renaissance and then you see that footage of those gifts of like mariah carey like very half-heartedly swinging her <laughs> arms to choreography and then just being like Picked carried up, around yeah. stage like a sack of potatoes because she can't be bothered i don't know that she's giving it her all in quite a way but like mariah carey at like 85 percent is most people's 200 percent. so True. yeah I'll take that was it. a great way of putting it. So if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email truthandmovies at tcoland.com or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, well, next week, the film release schedule got moved around because of the release of the new Taylor Swift concert movie. But rather than twiddle our thumbs, we're just pretending that hasn't happened. So we have two wonderful guests with a penchant for erotic thrillers to discuss Fair Play, Exorcist Believer, and one of my favorite unhinged movies from the 80s, Disclosure. Thank you very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Hafa Salas Ross and Sydney Arabank. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Sankus. 